Welcome to Continuing the Conversation. I'm Carl Amuzu. And I'm Glenn Collins. Fos Church is a community creating space for everyone to find hope, beauty, and purpose in the story of Jesus. Continuing the Conversation is one of the ways that we are trying to create a greater space for expanded dialogue and interactions based on the conversations we are having at Fos Church. The book of Genesis takes us from the primeval Adam to Adam and narratively carries us through some of the most formational stories of our faith. So many of us grew up hearing these stories in ways that captured our imaginations as children, but left us wanting as we began to engage them critically. Over the next few weeks, our community will engage in a conversation that takes a fresh look at these stories to create space for them to be subverted and reimagined as they offer us a new way forward. This week, we look at the creation narratives of Genesis. We explore how the poetry of Genesis 1 creates space for us to imagine God hovering over the primordial waters of chaos, bringing forth life. At the same time, the story found in Genesis 2 introduces us to the intimacy of God who creates humanity with intention and purpose. And with that, we want to just introduce Megan, who's going to be jumping into this conversation with us. And so we'll just give you a second to just kind of introduce yourself, where, where you're from, who are you, all that kind of good stuff. Hey, everyone. Uh, this is Megan. Uh, my full name is Megan Kirk. I live here in Los Angeles. Um, I am 27 years old. I'm a recent grad of Fuller Theological Seminary, got my master's in theology. Um, I'm half Indian, half white, and I am just enjoying getting to know this community and to speak into it in different ways. Awesome. Well, Megan, thank you for, for joining us in the conversation this week. Um, as we normally do, we just kind of create a little bit of space to kind of explore any thoughts or anything that came from either the shared story or the message that came through on uh, this past Sunday. So uh, maybe we can kind of just like jump, let you jump in first. If you had any thoughts or anything that came from the message, any, any, anything that you would like to explore before we jump into the head, heart and hands uh, formational learning questions. Sure. Um, so there was a idea that I had as uh, you were, as we heard the message for the first time and I kind of had been thinking about it throughout the week. I wasn't sure how much, uh, my idea would coincide with the text that well. Um, but I was really, as I usually am when I read this passage, drawn to that idea of, of the chaos that existed before. Um, and that the fact that there wasn't nothing, that there, there was something and it, it needed ordering, or there was something that God used to create um, this world. And I kind of was thinking about the order of creation and how if we are part of that ordering of, of what God was making, is there indeed chaos within us as well? Mm. Um, are we as humans made in the image of God also partakers uh, of chaos or is there chaos in our DNA? Um, are we made out of chaos and is that chaos still in us somehow? Um, is part of the image of God connected to ordered chaos. Um, so those are just some thoughts that I was thinking of after I heard your message and I've been kind of mulling over throughout the week, but I wasn't sure if that is something that was helpful or useful, uh, but I could definitely resonate with the idea of feeling like there's chaos inside of me um, and sometimes not knowing what to do to do well, with that. I'm curious in that statement, it sounds a little like um, 
chaos may be seen as a negative. Uh, when mm. you say chaos is inside, is that just a part of being the natural order? Or is that seen as like there's a darker element? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I guess defining chaos would be a difficult thing to do. Uh, I definitely think there's an inherent negative connotation that comes with it from how we use that word um, and how it's usually not a beneficial thing. Usually it results in harmful things. Um, but I'd be curious into what the positive side of chaos could be or, or what is chaos in and of itself. No, I, lo I love your thought though, that when you, when you talked about even like the idea of chaos being within us, right? And just like from a, like using the metaphor of water and how we talked about that in the message that like water being like metaphorically representative um, of chaos, right? And so when you talk about like our humans filled with chaos, it's like, yeah, 80%. So, <laughs> right, like we're just naturally filled with water and yeah. and, the, and the rest of it, like the rest of us, it's not water is, is then the same kind of dust that God forms and brings forth out of the chaos. And so we're that mixture of chaos and order. Um, very literally in that sense, like, well, metaphorically, literally, or literarily, if you mm -hmm. want to hold it that. But I, I love that, like, just as you shared that thought, that's what came to mind. I was like, absolutely. Biology tells us so. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what I found impactful within the sermon was in that idea of chaos, that uh, we need a little chaos for life to exist. So you're right. I think we often see chaos as just this dark other, this place that you don't go. It's always about order. But if water is seen as chaos, even the ancients that were writing the text would have seen that they also hope for water to be around their life. They hope for the rivers of chaos to run through the land so things can grow. That pure mm. order stifles and kills life. Mm. No, absolutely. That's, that's, a great, that's a great point. Um, I know for me, as I was reflecting on this, um, and I, I wish I could remember where I heard this from, but I was, I was listening to- Jesus. An, <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was listening to an interview um, that was talking about the notion of creativity and how when things are chaotic, art seems to move towards the ordered. But when things are very ordered, art moves towards the chaotic, right? And there's this interplay that always happens that like, like creativity in and of itself needs both the order and the chaos to exist in order for creativity to actually flourish. And so just kind of what Glenn was bringing up with the notion that yes, there's land, but we need the waters of, of chaos to actually flow through them for growth. And just what you're sharing with yourself, the, the idea of the, is there chaos within us? And like, what does it actually mean? And I would say like, like beyond like uh, some sort of necessarily negative connotation to chaos, I think because we have been, like we grew up in the West. And so we are kind of part of that rational scientific, you know, experiment in that sense. Um, we are naturally bent towards thinking that order is the good thing, right? But at the same time, like, I think a lot of ancient traditions would hold order and chaos in, in that balance, like needing both, because if things are too rigid, then there's no room for flexibility. If things are too flexible, then there's no room for things to grow in, in a structured sense, right? So there, there's that both kind of flowing within and out. And I, and, mm -hmm. and I loved how that, like, that quote just kind of brought that forward for me, that there was this, that, that when things are too rigid, art is gonna be the thing that, that brings forth chaos again. And then when things are too chaotic, art's gonna bring that, be that thing that helps us find order and structure in the midst of, of our, our lives, in the midst of finding meaning as we go forward. Well, and I think particular to our shared tradition of the text is in, in other tellings, these waters, the chaotic elements were actually personified. So you had um, deities of chaos. In this one, in demythologizing them and, and making it 
oceans and a sea instead of Timaeus, we have this moment that it's the created order that needs chaos, that the waters flow everywhere. So like you said, it's expressed great within art, but that every point of life um, needs movement. Mm. And I'd say for some of the ways, at least I understood life growing up, you had such succinct order to everything. You knew when A ended, B started, when B ended, C started. And where we actually get to see life, when we get to have a moment of reflection, is when we pause those steps so we don't just go through life with decisions made at five years old. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But yeah, those I think those are great thoughts. So Glenn, why don't you, um, I think it's a great time for us to be able to move into the head, heart, and hands of formational learning time. Why don't you just uh, give us a little summary of what each of those represent? Now, the head, heart, and the hands are three levels of question asking so we can try to move ourselves through a process. The head is usually conceptual. It's what you'll be thinking about how you structure your world. The heart becomes a reflective moment to where we can see the structure and say, hey, where does it impact? Where does it touch our lives? That we can step into the hands question that makes it a tangible reality to where we can say, how will we live through the reflection, the rethinking, and the considering of what was? Okay, well, we're going to start with the head question. And the head question is many stories that seek to answer the questions of where do we come from and what is our purpose? How do the two stories found in Genesis chapters one and two answer those questions? Well, one, it helps to read. Apparently I can't. <laughs> <laughs> and since I'm so articulate, do you want to jump into that one? Sure. Um, well, I, I love the interplay in, in, in both of those chapters where I think in, in Genesis, in Genesis one, especially, right? Like the answer, the question of like, where do we come from? Um, like, like God is this like, like divine spark in a sense, like the, the thing that, that brings forth all sort all being in a sense, right? Like in the beginnings, God created the heavens and the earth. And however people like, you know, people talk about ex nihilo or people talk about, you know, creation from something, all these different things. I think like we begin to actually miss the, 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 the real part of what's being spoken there is that God is still the, 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 the grounded being in a sense from which all things come forth. Right. And I, and so. Um, I love I love that part, be, and I, but I also love how like in Genesis chapter two, like you have this like very intimate look at what, of 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 how that comes forth because God creates, um, and and it, it automatic and it goes really fast into God creates humanity and God like He gathers up the dust off the ground or like uh, God gathers up the dust. Let's not use male pronouns for God. Um, God gathers up the dust from the ground and then God breathes life. Into, into this, like God breathes, like 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 theologians would talk about God breathing his own, like <laughs> God breathing's God God's own spirit into into human humanity, and again, like that. So that spark, instead of just becoming the the divine spark from which all life emerges, it's the it's the divine spark that animates our very human existence in a sense. And so I think like like when I when I hear those two stories kind of in interplay, like that's how I like that answering that question, like where do we come from. And like the question simply, you know, if I want to put it simply would be the divine spark of God. Um, and then the idea of purpose where in Genesis two, especially in Genesis two, like, like God, like, like humanity is created with, with a purpose to, 
be and, and in Genesis one, like there's that that notion of caring for and being stewards over and being, you know, people that, that, that being the people that help to or co-creators with God in a sense that we help to not just sustain the creative process, but to help it flourish and go beyond what God actually created. And so God puts the the raw the raw forms there and then humanity is is called to help shape those things into you know to help order the garden in a sense and so for me at least i, I love i love those interplays that are happening in the stories there any how, how about you guys um i still have the ideas of order and chaos sort of swirling around um but i definitely love how the two different accounts kind of are this swirling dance between order and chaos in the sense that there is there's a chaos that's being very structured um, and ordered in Genesis one, but in the second one you see this more relational narrative that is has a less structured and predictable approach to it. Um, I also like that there is kind of this mystery in the sense of where that water that's there at the very beginning comes from, like. Why is it there? Why is there no creation statement about that water and chaos that existed? Um, and I like that it adds this element of mystery to where we come from as well. There's there's a feeling of having an explanation of like, okay, we are we're drawing our life source from God, but there's also this mysterious element that's still kept and not completely squashed out. Um, and for some reason, I feel like that's really important in the sense that there's still there's still more to seek and more to know about this. Um, but I also like that it kind of, for me, answers a little bit of the question, what does it mean to be human? Um, and I always had a hard time using this phrase, but it almost shows the humanity of God as well. Um, I don't like thinking of it that way. It's almost like, you know, I normally define myself by God. Um, but there's this, especially in Genesis 2, this very clear sense of relational humanity in the way that God is moving and creating and speaking. Um, so it's almost like I can see my humanity in God in that sense. I see where that part of me comes from as well, not just the the flesh that i have but whatever it is that makes me human i see it in that account as well um i'm actually curious for the one moment that you said um, i'm uncomfortable of speaking of the humanity of god because in the accounts the first one ends with humans almost being the um, divine shrine set in the middle of a temple and so mm -hmm. i'm going to make an image in my likeness and that mm -hmm. comes to humanity which means we have to have a shared a shared entity in some way of our human existence between. And yeah. in the second one, um, not just the animated breath, but the God seeking, knowing, and desiring to be known, that why is that that the fact that God would be being or God would be more human-like than kind of a Zeus figure bad for us? Yeah, I don't think it's bad. I think it's just definitely the internalized stories that I've had growing up that I'm coming into contact with. Um, even like, I don't want to bring Genesis into the Jesus story, but um, Jesus as God in human form with human flesh. Um, it's, it's definitely the 
that story has been really hard for me to fully embrace in a way that I know that I can and that we are meant to as Christians. Um, it's not a bad thing, but I think the idea of God's humanity frightens me in a lot of ways. Um, and it, in my head, for some reason, it, I feel like I was trained to see that as reducing him somehow diminishing him instead of, or to not use male pronouns as well. I know that's always hard to get rid of, um, but there's some diminishment that happens there that I know is wrong, but I'm trying to wrestle with that, I guess. Nice. Um, I know for myself in these moments, uh, it's actually that idea of, I think the creation accounts give purpose because it is actually the story of people wrestling with what it means to talk about God. And to me, the most beautiful part of both of them for saying, where do we come from? It's the poetic imagination since Genesis one creation account is a poem. And actually in both creation accounts, the first one starts with water, but the second one was not originally attached to the first. It starts with dry land. So in both you have barrenness that you have to shape into something that's life-giving but it responds to the needs of the community saying, what does it mean for God to be with us? And in that poetic reimagining, um, I think we get to experience the humanity of God, but in so a wider humanity in ourselves. And it's, it's in that exchange that I think it becomes a beautiful way for us to say the creative process of reimagining the um, poetic imagination to say that life is more vast, it has more depth, and even some touches of chaos that make it exciting. That honestly, I get a little embarrassed in front of other people because I come from the same tradition. So saying like, no, the humanity of God, that's where God's awesome. Um, they look at me like a heretic. Like they've never <laughs> heard of the incarnation before. Yeah, I know. You know they're, they're all, they're, dude, they're all Neoplatonists. Just tell them that. <laughs> but yeah, let's be honest. Uh, most of our concepts of God are. God is the not present, the entity beyond that's static, unchanging. And if we can only get back to the first text, then we'll find the perfect representation of the static, unchanging, distant God of a mountaintop. Instead mm -hmm. of saying that, like, when we see Christ, we see the image of the invisible God, like, hey, who knew? <laughs> well, and, but sometimes we present that as a change rather than saying that God was always kind of incarnate. Yeah. Um, then we, we, we like, I, I, like, obviously we're jumping out of, uh, Genesis one <laughs> and two now, obviously it's okay. John likes Genesis. So we're good with that. <laughs> well, but, but, uh, but even when you begin to look at like the interactions that humanity has within the, like the, the, the rest of Genesis, right? Like you have, um, is it, uh, Israel, like, uh, Israel's my, not around no, yet. Jacob, Jacob. Um, wrestling with 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 the God figure, right? So there, there's this, there's this moment of of humanness, fleshness uh, of 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 Jacob mm -hmm. wrestling with the divine, and then being given a new name, Israel, out of, out of that. So like there's like you know, we, or where you have Abraham and he's visited by the the the, the three um, the three beings, right? And is meant to be a representation uh, of God. 
um, of, of God. Again, um, there's, there's, there's these incarnate moments that happen throughout even the Genesis story as we build through it, that if we are scared to talk about, the hum, in a sense, the humanness or the incarnation of God in anything besides these platonic terms, we actually lose the moments where there's these very grounded, very flesh and blood moments of interaction with God that I think are, for me at least, are so formational to the way that I've understood God. Like, like the story of mm-hmm. Jacob wrestling with God, um, I would say like that, that to me is, is like one of the key metaphors that I, I, how I understand my faith is like, there has to be this incarnation. There has to be this flesh and blood, um, tangible expression mm-hmm. of God that I can actually wrestle with. I but can actually also engage. Note the thing you're saying is, um, when we're asking the question of purpose is you just change the purpose to the act of wrestling rather than trying to get to the finished spot that you never have to wrestle again. It's actually into that. I that, changed it. Well, in the way you just framed the story is like you, you put the onus on this, this ability to wrestle rather than normally what we say purpose is, is we're looking towards a fixed state out there that if we can just get the world to this ideal over here, we're done. Got you. I wouldn't look at purpose that way. So it wouldn't even dawn on me that I changed the telos or like the ending of what I was trying to say there. I'd be like, no, the purpose is actually the journey. It's, it's, you know, like, like the purpose of road trips is not getting to where the destination it's the, it's the fighting with your brothers and sisters in the backseat of the car. Right? Which is like, why we don't the take road, road trip. trips together. <laughs> we, we are too grown and too old to wrestle in the backseat of a car, homie. <laughs> I'm just saying, man, like, if you want to get out the car and wrestle, uh, that's still weird. But <laughs> the backseat of the car is not happening. <laughs> okay, this just went to a strange place. So um, <laughs> you said you had a heart question somewhere, I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lovely transition. Yes. Um, well, no, I, let's, let's stay with, let's stay with the, the, the hate question for a sec. Okay. Um, because I, I would I would love to to kind of flesh out like like we talked a lot about kind of human like the humanness or incarnation and mm-hmm. and I think that connects us like that grounded to our like where do we come from part of it but I would I would love to actually like kind of flesh out that incarnational pulse towards purpose like what does that actually mean then if we can like see ourselves in the humanness or humanity or the flesh and blood of, of God or, or incarnation whatever language you want to put to that. Um, what does it actually say for our purpose then, right? So if we're answering that question, uh, what, what is our purpose? What, what, how does that speak to it? I think there are a lot of different ways you could go. Um, the first thought may be basic or cliche, but it's still powerful. Um, the idea of the purpose being to create, um, to, to make things tangible, um, to m- make a a certain reality real um in a way that you can interact with it in your set with your five senses in a way that isn't abstract but is there has boundaries you can touch it you can name it you can see it taste it feel it hear it um i think that's a large part of our purpose um we're not just passive observers of what's happening we're active creators um for our world, our communities, uh, whatever area that looks like. Oh, I, lo- I love that. I lo- like, um, correct me if I'm wrong in, in, in summarizing that. Like, it's almost like our purpose then is to cultivate like a tangible reality 
um, to move things from almost like the idea of imagination into in, 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 like an incarnating, incarnating imagination into actual physicality in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I would I, agree. I, yeah, I love, I love that. I love that whole concept. There's so much there that we could kind of dive into, um, mm. but I, but I want to give Glenn a shot to kind of answer this as well. <laughs> well, I would actually be a lot the same to where what I see in this is our purpose is to delve into chaos and to use the elements of chaos and around us to cultivate areas of life. Because I think what we see in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2 is the point of community engaged in creation and what creation looks like is either taking a sea that can't produce life or an arid dry ground that cannot produce life and creating an orchard in the middle so that people can eat and know each other. And that gives a little bit more expansive notion in the sense like it doesn't give us one specific act in the same way that Megan, when you said that it is to enter into this creative state, it doesn't give a specific act but it gives us a posture that we can be in each place with. That if we can say our effect is bringing water to dry land, our effect is enabling other people to experience rich life, then we're doing it well. Hmm. I like that, man. Um, I, I, like for me, the question of, of purpose and especially moving out of like that, that beingness of, of God, um, I was very much kind of very similar to both like what you guys are saying. Um, I, I think there's this, this notion that like as we're created in the image of God and so therefore our creativity, um, like when we're actually living into that, when we are being creative beings, then we are living into our image of, you know, being in, made in the image of the creator. And so for, for me, I, I, I don't like, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm more artistically or, or more like creatively bent that I would say like that, that our purpose then to becomes to become is sorry our purpose is to become creative beings and that when we are are active in the world as creative beings we have this generative perspective where there's there's more things that can be brought forth more life can be brought forth um, but when we step into the world as non-creative beings we automatically think things are limited things are static and we begin to actually fight for resources and that kind of stuff and i think it's directly connected to whether or not we see ourselves within the image of the the, the creator god and if we can see ourselves within the image of the creator God, then, then, then all things are, are generative and it's within our imagination. It's within our DNA in that sense to actually come up with generative solutions for all of us to be able to be present. So. That's good. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to the, to the heart question. Glenn, why don't you uh, lead us in with that? The heart question is the idea that our stories expand when encountering other stories is one that challenges our need to defend our story as the sole story. How has your story been expanded by encountering new and other stories around you? So it's in this moment that I wish I had all these concrete specific examples uh, where I just could have that genius ability to remember every book I've ever read. Um, but for me, I this immediately made me think of um, the times in my recent studies where I would encounter creation or origin stories from other surrounding ancient Near Eastern cultures that would be even older than uh, the people of Israel um, and seeing how many similarities there were in a lot of these stories. Um, and it really challenged 
my understanding of, you know, who, who God is and who he's choosing to interact with this idea of being like, and this is, I know a very specific route to take with this, but being a chosen people who God chose to create and give his story to, um, in the sense of seeing so many similar, uh, narrative methods, I guess I could say, and even specific narrative plot points within the creation stories of the surrounding cultures. Um, And it just really expanded and challenged my understanding of this idea that I believe the creation story in particular gives of this exclusive chosenness of being God's chosen people. Um, that he he began with this person and it specifically went to these people and then they became the chosen people and we're the next step of the, um, what is it called? The baton race. Um, we're the next people that it's been passed off to. Um, it really challenged my understanding of that. And I think sometimes that exclusiveness that comes with this whole narrative of God's chosen people that begins with this creation story Um, It has been damaging. Um, Sometimes I think it can limit our um, ability to understand God or it it very well facilitates our ability to put him in a box about who who God is and what God is trying to do um, in the world. But that's kind of where my thoughts went with this question. I know it's kind of a very specific angle. Oh, no, it's good. Um, it was, it's just interesting as you're, as you're sharing your answer, like, especially like the, the part about kind of like drawing that direct line, like, okay, so it starts here, it goes to these people and then we're the next iteration in the baton race. Um, it, it's just, it just, it was very vivid imagery, but it, it kind of like, as a contrast to that, the image that pops in my head is like, if we began to see, um, that, that, that tracing back of lineage as like the, almost the notion of a family tree, right? Like, uh, versus, well, it's, it's not that there's only been one baton that can only be passed down. It's actually this kind of big generative thing that continues to grow and, 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 and with, with, but our roots are in these similar stories, our roots, like, especially the fact that we find these similar stories all over the globe. Well, not all over the globe, but like emerging from the same spaces and they're being re- reinterpreted and reiterated, um, like speak to that commonality to me at least. And I, and I don't know, like, obviously this is, I'm just going, I'm going to dive into the philosophical deep end um, as far as the way that I'm, I'm trying to interpret this moment is that like, w- I wonder if that's almost like when we talk about the tree of life, is that generative kind of giving of the narrative all the way back versus some sort of abstract thing that like, well, we, you know, and it's, it's like, cause I think there's that disconnection and so that disconnection where we don't see other people's stories as our stories. We don't see these origin points as our origin points. And because of that, we've been disconnected from the, you know, the metaphorical tree of life in that sense. So oh, that, that's mm-hmm. what kind of came to mind as you were sharing those, those pieces. That's great. You look like you have something to say there, Glenn. Oh no, just, that's curious to me because, um, and this could just be uh, an idea of being able to hear about um, colonization and being a white dude, especially studying like religious history to where we saw everybody's stories that agreed with us as ours, and then we baptized them into our culture. That in my head, my first response was like, actually not allowing their stories to be their stories and not a shared origin story does that take away some of the particularity and is that expanding by running into their story to say, well, no, it's really just a part of mine. 
or is that shrinking because we need to shrink that story enough to fit in commonality? And, and I'm not I'm not necessarily trying to say that their story is now like the same as my story or trying to appropriate their story. I'm just saying that there's there's this generative space where we don't have to def we're, we're not trying to fight for like whose meta narrative is correct. It's actually like there's this there's this welcoming space that says these stories actually can influence and and have voice with one another in like where we know like the the stories in Genesis are they're, they're 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 not original in that sense right their their origins mm -hmm. lie within the origins of other origin stories and their interpretations their retelling in a way that that, that is to me at least generative and and bringing forth new life versus trying to appropriate the story and say well their story is null and void it can be a critique it can be even a voice that disagrees mm -hmm. but it's still a voice at the table it, it reminds me of an old um rabbinic saying that said that Moses came back and was a little bit concerned about what his descendants would do. And so he got brought to the future. And when he sat in on a lecture from one of the rabbis that had nothing to do with anything Moses heard on the mountain, he was concerned until he said, and this too was in the mouth of Moses on the mountain. And suddenly Moses was happy and said, he is right. He is right for all words were spoken in this moment. And I think that's been one of the more challenging things in this as stories run into each other. It's like you said, that generative possibility to say that you were right. All this and more was spoken in this moment of creation. All this and more. So when I run into other stories, I can value those points of continuity that say life is worth living, that people are valuable, that there's a shared humanity and allows it to be a bit more expansive um, and lets me relax a little bit because then I can listen for the hope that there's something beautiful as opposed to um, being scared that I'm going to get corrupted in some way. Mm. No, yeah, I, I, um, I think what came to mind was that idea of like the chaos that was there at the beginning, the idea that there was something before um, and it was mysterious and it's not fully fleshed out. Um, but there is that space for something that existed before. Um, there is the spaciousness for it to fit together. Um, and I think that more often than not, the majority of uh, the people who make up the church, like that is, that's still, I feel like a new idea um, that not many people wrestle with. Um, and it's almost like there is this collision with your faith whenever you encounter that idea for the first time. Um, so I think it's really important that we do talk about that idea and the spaciousness and the different ways that the stories work together and aren't at arms with one another. Um, yeah, yeah. I think that's a great point. Cause I think even that is a, like highlighting that is highlighting even maybe a negative way that like stories bumping into each other, they can actually appropriate and usurp uh, narratives and not giving like the original narrative the space to actually speak because I think the way the church interprets interprets um, that Genesis one passage as creation from nothing um, was well, because we read it through the lens of Hebrews first right like like because it said mm -hmm. versus allowing us to read Genesis for, as Genesis and allowing us to read Hebrews as Hebrews and say okay well why would this person who wrote Hebrews um, why would she say that things were created from nothing versus 
um, created from something like, right? Like, what, like, like, because I think it asks, it's for me, it's a much more interesting question than just saying, well, Hebrews said this, um, the author, she must know what she's talking about. Therefore, 1500 years before, any narratives that were circulating as oral traditions or whatever you want to call it, um, they can't speak for themselves anymore, right? Well, and I would say that even that notion, we have to recognize that Hebrews does not say it um, if, we're, if we're going with the Greek text, but it's in the Latin text that it says it. So we even get the development towards the chaos filling the nothingness that we say, oh, now it is nothing because we found a text here that leans towards it. No, exactly. Um, and again, this is why we're all deal Platonists. <laughs> <laughs> but I think one thing to point out, though, that is valuable for stories bumping into each other is often, like you, um, you said, Megan, we, can, we have these moments that they can bump in and we recognize. But I think one of the beauties can be like when we come into this crisis of faith, we can still hold on to our own particularity. Because often I've witnessed in these things that people kind of either double down and say everything is dumb but me, or they go to the other extreme and say nothing can be said but gray. Mm -hmm. Rather than owning our stories, it's okay that we come from these traditions, have this faith, and have our reading of Genesis. Where I think it becomes not okay, as Carl said, in the question of um, subordinating somebody else's reading, is we say my reading must dictate your reading. But I'm allowed to have my reading go, no, this is how I see it. Let me let me unpack this story for you the way I see it. Because otherwise we deny people the possibility of expanding from our own particularity. Mm. Yeah. That's good. Um, it's kind of changed change, change, change note a little bit, but in, in, in the way that I would answer this question is moving into um, my own narrative in, in, in how stories of kind of encountering different stories have expanded my story um, for myself. Like when, when I was thinking about this question, um, the way that, that, that the thing that kind of came to mind the most was when I was living in L.A. Um, and I got to hang out with a lot of different um, brothers and sisters from from Africa, like so from different places in Africa, all over the all over the continent. Um, and kind of kind of coming to this realization that when, as I'm sitting in, 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 in America, sitting in L.A., um, that I, I'm finding a lot of continuity with these brothers and sisters from from Africa versus even my, my brothers and sisters part, that are part of like the African diaspora that are that is in, in in America. And it was the first time that in my own story where like, cause like, you know, I grew up in Canada. I was raised by, you know, um, white parents for the most part, even though like my dad is African from, from Togo. Um, and so I'm first generation on that part, but on the other side, my family's, you know, is maybe nine generations deep in Canada. And I saw, I just saw myself as Canadian. I saw myself as, well, like, 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 like I've, I've been here kind of idea versus understanding myself from the space of as an immigrant, someone who has traveled, mm -hmm. someone whose parents have traveled and that, I, mm -hmm. that, I, that I'm new to this space. Um, but, but it was in, interesting listening to their stories and, and their emergence into the culture uh, and how that was being formed and being shaped and how, and the ways that they were grasping at, at parts of the different narrative and how they were realizing it was shaping them. And looking back throughout my own story of how I, how I grew up, how I was shaped, how I allowed certain narratives to, to kind of form me and realizing that I really resonated with the immigrant experience because um, because I actually am immigrant in that sense. But it was mm -hmm. the first time that it dawned on me that, Carl, like, you're, you're, you know, your dad is you were first generation on one side. And so having these different stories actually like allowed me to expand and say, OK, like, what does it look like for me to actually then own that part of my identity and to explore it and to have the freedom to, to explore it? And then also 
on the other side of it to like then say, what does it look like for me to begin to explore um, that's the spaces where I'm from as well, because like, you know, as, mm-hmm. as children of immigrants, um, there's that like we have this like third space kind of thing happening where we, we mm-hmm. are we're at home here in one sense, but we're not at home here. Our home mm-hmm. is also over there, but we're also not really at home there. And we kind of exist in this multiplicity of places. And but it was mm-hmm. the first time that it ever dawned on me that my feeling out of place where I'm from was the direct result of the fact that I am actually not from here in that sense, right? So it, it, was, it was, for me, it was really interesting to have that kind of um, expansion happen in my story. Mm. That's great. I can really resonate with that personally, um, being uh, biracial, um, having one parent that's an immigrant, but also came here when she was very young. She was like 13, 14. So there's really these like multiple selves that you're constantly wrestling with. And I think it especially gets hard when you grow up in the culture of whatever country you're in and you, you've almost like assimilated really well with sort of the dominant culture. And then you realize there's this whole other side to you. So you have to wrestle with that identity and the story that comes with that identity. Um, so yeah, that's really good. Thank you for sharing. Oh yeah, no, for sure. Um, and I know, like, it's, it's interesting, like, you know, because Glenn, I know, like, being um, white, growing up in the dominant culture. I am. <laughs> growing, <laughs> growing up in the dominant culture. Um, but the reality is that your story, like, especially on your on your on your mother's side is you, you're what you're 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 third generation um, Italian immigrant. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> see, but even the fact that you're like, uh, maybe possibly, yeah. um, like leads to that part that because you grew up in dominant culture, um, that the story of like your, your immigrant story um, is, is somewhat disconnected for you. Um, mm-hmm. Are there ways that you have through encountering other people's stories that you've actually been able to tap into that own sense of um, I'm ne- not necessarily from here, that I actually have roots in other places? Like, have you ha- even had a desire to explore the places where your family's from? Well, um, oddly enough, being raised in a conservative um, religious environment, we were against culture for the most part. Like um, your position in community was threatened by the wrong music, the wrong movies, mm-hmm. or um, when I was a kid uh, wearing pants that were too baggy because it showed <laughs> you to be a rebel. So in that, we never could fit culturally. But what I had found was I couldn't quite fit into culture, even though I was raised into it because of my religious upbringing. But as I met people who are from more rooted communities, um, you know, they could say, we don't know when our families got here. Um, I'd found that actually some of America's erasing of African identities to create black also erased most white identities to create white. Oh, absolutely. Because I'm Irish and Italian, but yeah. I got to run into a whole group of Irish men when I, when I lived in a city And they looked at me and said, you look close enough to one of us. Drink with us tonight. (laughs) And they were just being clowns and acting up. I was like, oh, what is this? Like, we're Irishmen. I was like, oh, that's weird. So this is what it is. Um, Like, I have no sense of cultural narrative. It's Mm. it's this lack of rudeness. Yes, I'm American. Yes, I'm a few generations in. But outside of saying whiteness is not this, there's no shared stories to pull from. Yeah. yeah. And, and the more that you try to dig into that kind of white narrative idea, you find as much as whiteness had to erase the history of, of blackness, it had to erase its own in order to keep that juxtaposition. And this made yeah. it really strange because yeah. I can't like I've read up on Celtic traditions, 
It doesn't mm. feel like home. Um, mm. I've read up on some of Irish histories. It's like, that's awesome. I can see where some of my ancestors came from, but I have nothing in common other than we both burn in the sun really easy. Okay. <laughs> but, I, but I think you're tapping into something there, like the idea of, um, as, as like, like in order for, for how to put it, I was, let's say the experiment that is America to work, mm -hmm. you have this necessary erasing of, of cultural identity or ethnic identity. Right. And so in order for, for blackness to exist, then African identity has to be erased in order for whiteness to exist. European identity has to be erased. Mm -hmm. And, but, but in that dichotomy of whiteness and blackness, well, then you, is, is the emergence of white supremacy. Right. And I think part of the erasure, you know, the dismantling of, of uh, white supremacy probably comes from the, like dismantling the white identity then. Right. Like to actually beginning to deconstruct it and say, OK, what are the things that are erased? Can we actually recapture these things? Can we actually allow cultural narratives to speak for themselves in ways that are actually valuable. And, and, and that way it's, it's ethnic identities, ethnic identities and cultural identities that are coming to the table that are not racial identities anymore, which, have, which are, are things that were invented to actually create the system of oppression um, that we have now. Right. And so I, I don't know, like for me, like, like, like race is, is, is a, is a tool and product of white supremacy or white supremacy is a, is a byproduct of, of race, either way, how you want to look at it. But I, I know like when I speak to a lot of people that, that they come from a quote unquote white background, they're just like, oh, I'm just white. Like they, 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 even if like, they can't name the spaces that they come from. And it's almost like when we, like, you know, like what I, we talked about, it, I talked about in the message of that, like the place, the location is something that's grounding. There's something that's healing about that. So being able to know where you're from, to be able to, to like, you know, I know in, like in many traditions around the world, especially in African traditions, um, there's that notion that our ancestors are looking after us. Our ancestors are with us, right? Mm -hmm. So not to be able to name the place that you're from is to lose connection with the generations that have gone before you. And to lose connection with the generations that have gone before you allows you to just kind of sit in the murky waters of whiteness, which is just based out of, a, it's just a tool of oppression. Well, and I'd say um, coming to the question that we had of how stories have expanded is like you said, um, if we don't allow our stories to expand by not only being able to name our story and recognize the value of somebody else's, we come to this anemic reality of where we have to erase all stories. Because mm -hmm. the less we can name ourselves and less we can recognize what is other, because what mm -hmm. is this thing that um, a Hebrew prof I had that she said that's always stayed with me, said, in America, we're so scared of naming the other because of all that we've done to others that we no longer can define ourselves. So, because the other is not just something to protect or watch out for, it's something to help you realize who you are too. Mm. Um, and other stories, other particularities, other peoples help you understand self. If you all have to be a melting pot that has the same story, you never get the differentiation that helps life to come into you. Mm -hmm. mm. Any, any, any thoughts on that at all? Yeah, um, that's powerful. Thank you both. Uh, for sharing. I think um, Glenn, it really made, drove home the point that you made earlier about the the power and the need for particularity um, and the need for us to have uh, some sort of ownership of story. And I think that is really true that there's, when you can't tap into that, there whether you're aware of it or not, there is an ache um, that comes with that that missing piece um, on my, my dad's side, um, he, he's probably, 
Irish, Scottish, one or the other. We don't really know. My dad, he didn't know his dad. Um, and his mom had his, his name legally changed when he was seven years old. So he didn't actually find out what his real last name was until recently. Um, so our last name is Kirk, but the name he was born with was Micklemore. I'm like, okay, well, that obviously points to some specific type of heritage, but for him, it's a mystery. He's just, uh, for him, all he knows is America and the life that he's lived here. Um, there's no grand narrative that he belongs to. If anything, I think the Christian story has become his culture and his, his narrative. Um, but it really made me think of the all lives matter movement. Um, that's not really a movement, but the response to the black lives matter yeah, movement all lives, thing, all, well, lives, matter all lives matter. And I really think that's directly related to this conversation in the sense that I've, I don't have a narrative of my own. So now I need to erase all the narratives. Um, because if I can't have it, you can't have it. Um, mm. And it's a sense of like, why do they get to have this narrative um, of their story of, how they got here and what they've had to experience. Where's mine? Um, well, I would question. Yeah, that, go ahead, go ahead. I'd question that a little, just for the, the all lives matter, because you can't see what you've never been taught to see. Um, we learn to speak from the cultures we're raised in. So if it's always only been in us, if we were raised every particularity, every story that brought us here, mm-hmm. then all that all that can be heard is that your us doesn't sound like my us. But we have no notion of difference of separation, so it's not because uh, that sounded a bit active to say I can't have it, so you can't. They don't even know they're swimming, uh, kind of idea. It's like it's mm-hmm. in, it's because a fish know what's in water. Yeah, it's like it's like so for them. All you said is your us is different, and that can't be because I'm us. Yeah, like which is tragic because it doesn't allow the different experience of violence in communities to actually have weight, meaning, and value. Mm-hmm. Because all you can think is, especially in America, we push really hard. And I love my country, by the way. So this isn't anti-stage. It's just we're unique and special people that have done special things that are sometimes dumb. Um, but we, we, since we only have an us and we insist so hard that we're a melting pot, we don't understand any diverse narratives within it ever. Yeah. yeah. Like I remember, um, if you guys remember, you guys know who uh, Soon Chung Ra is, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? So um, he came and did a class in Hawaii when I was there. And I had, a, I had the benefit to sit in on it. And uh, he basically said, like, you know, like Hawaii gave him a new metaphor. He's like, where, where America really wants everything to be a melting pot. He's like, we need to be more like a, like a, um, a plate lunch where we begin to take all these different beautiful flavors from all over the place and say, isn't it amazing in their actual distinctiveness, right? Like, because if you were to just throw it into one pot, it would be disgusting. But because it's it's separate, because you can actually see the flavor, the different flavors that are emerging, we have this beautiful thing called a plate lunch, right? And yeah. so for him, it gave him this new metaphor, and I really I really loved like when he when he when he brought that to the class, it kind of helped me to to be like yeah okay like we need like like the beauty and the hope for America like I'm Canadian so but so I'm, this is my wish for you guys is that <laughs> you guys would become like a really really dope plate lunch. <laughs> Not that, that works yeah. so well. Because you're right, any plate lunches I had in Hawaii would be disgusting if you shook the box. Yeah. Yeah. But individually, it was the most magical experience in your life. And if you've never been or had the opportunity to have it, Google L&L 
plate lunch and hopefully someone made a chain around you. LNL Drive-In. And on the mainland, it's called LNL Barbecue, just so mm-hmm. you guys know. So there, it is on the mainland. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're on the West Coast, just go to Tacoma at the mall, and it's right there at the mall. Beautiful. <laughs> Change Beautiful. your life, and you'll see a better America. Yeah. Chicken katsu curry with the mac salad. Boom. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's definitely a few in the San Fernando Valley if you're ever in the L.A. area. That's, that's where it's located. <laughs> All right. And just so you know, this is not a paid announcement by L.A. <laughs> Dude, I want a locomoco right now, though. No, for sure, for sure. Uh, but with that, like, just uh, for the sake of time, we should, we should move on to the hands question. Uh, so Genesis 2 invites us to find our purpose in this world as co-creators with God who help create the conditions for life to flourish. How can you participate in creating spaces where life flourishes because of your presence? Um, For myself, I'll say how I've experienced flourishing was letting go of the demand to assimilate or to agree. That as I've I've been able to sit and um, for me, usually in uncomfortable conversations to where I get to hear how people have experienced the dominant culture that I represent. Um, not to try to check, to uh, check, challenge, or to even pacify, because usually the pacifying is just pacifying me, but being able to sit in the tension of the stories um, has been a way that I've seen fruitful conversations, even relationships start. Mm, that's awesome. So for me, um, there are many different uh, ways that I can immediately think of, um, or of how I would answer this question. Uh, but for some reason, what's been really important to me recently is even thinking about uh, environmental justice and just mm-hmm. stewardship of the earth in a very physical sense with the resources we have um, and and even taking creation for, for what it is, the actual creation and taking care of it and making sure our planet is a place where life can continue to flourish, life of all forms. Um, so I think... Something that I've been looking into uh, a lot is what is what is my role and my call as a Christian in regards to um, environmental justice hmm. and, and what are ways I as an individual and then also as an individual as a part of a larger community, uh, what are ways that I can create a better space and even just begin a discussion about it for churches. Um, so that's one thing that's on my mind. Um, With this- and Would this look like community gardens kind of a thing? Or are you thinking of how do we lessen our um, footprint? Like how how is that question being driven? Yeah, I think it's all of it. There's so Mm. many ways that that breaks down. Um, I'm trying to focus on my immediate area of impact. And a lot of that has to do with even just the resources that I use, the waste that I create, um, the energy that I use, thinking about being a good steward in all of those different ways, especially in quarantine. I think there are many ways that are because we don't have access to certain things, our waste level has just increased where you're having one trash bag a week before. Now it's like three because there's just everybody's at home and you're ordering out and you're, there's all this plastic that's being used. Hmm. Um, but just thinking about how, how I'm contributing to what I see as a way is that God has revealed himself in the world through creation and the ways that we actively participate in destroying that. Mm. Um, that's something that's been mm. on my mind a lot lately. No, it's really good. That's really good. Um, 
No, I think even even like just the fact that you're bringing a conscious awareness to like our, the way that we the way that we live and like the symbiotic relationship that we have to to you know to creation around us and mm-hmm. um that even like when things change like like when i thought of like when i was like you mentioned quarantine when i thought of quarantine like the thing that came to mind was like it's actually been really cool to not have so much like pollution in the air but then yeah. it, like as pollution has lessened in the air um our consumption rates have gone up and so we're actually producing um waste in in other ways and so um, it's just really interesting that that like we have this symbiotic relationship that has actually been probably pretty one way for a long mm-hmm. time with like the way that we have um, misused and not stewarded um, the way that we live within creation. And so even even in quarantine, there are things that we can begin to think about, like the fact that like we're all using disposable gloves, disposable masks, disposable this, disposable that. Um, mm-hmm. Like as we were getting, you know, takeout, as you said, takeout food and things like that, like man, like we need to actually really think about the things that we're consuming in this in, in this moment. And, you know, and I know a lot of people say, well, we don't have time to think about consumption. We don't have time to think about these things. We're going through a, tra- you know, a tragedy We're you know, we're being traumatized. Yeah. We're being whatever, whatever. Um, but at the same time, like not not I don't I don't want to make light of people's like situations. But at the yeah. same time, I just look at the, the the traumatic effect that our consumption has on on, on the earth. You know, you know, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And, and so I, I appreciate you bringing that up because like, all I could think of was like, oh yeah, like pollution was less, has been less. Like I could go outside mm-hmm. and I can breathe, even even in the midst of like like a pretty bad allergy season, my allergies are all not are not all that bad right now because like yeah. it's not mixed with pollution on top of it. Um, yeah. And so for me, I was thinking, well, man, we're doing pretty good. Like like we need more quarantine. And then you just brought up a whole other perspective that that just had like jumped out of my head that wasn't even mm-hmm. part of on that wasn't even on my radar. So I really appreciate that. Thank yeah, you. Same. Yeah, same. Because I just know I haven't thought about other households that have more people. Because mine mm-hmm. just has my wife and myself, and this means we've had less dates going out. Um, I have less meetings and coffee shops, so our consumption of disposable mm-hmm. goods actually went down a lot. So in my head, I was like, oh, that must be everybody. Mm-hmm. Everybody has went down. Yeah, I think there's definitely, like, for some people, it's an improvement. And then for others, like, for our household, we're all working. Um, me and my mom are working full time still. And there's almost this, even though we're not commuting anymore, there's this extra exhaustion that comes with just mm-hmm. trying. I don't know what it is with just being in the house all the time. There's like this just heaviness and depression that comes with it. And so cooking is like just something that's really hard to do. Um, and then even getting to the store and going to the grocery store, it's a different process now. Mm-hmm. Um, so going shopping all the time isn't really realistic. So finding eating out has become something that is just a constant for us. Um, but it, it has its own consequences in many different ways. Um, so I know, and even for LA, the restaurants that are opening up, they're being mandated by the, by the city to use disposable everything, disposable mm. plates, disposable forks, disposable, all one-time use plastic. Oh, really? Um, so I just... It just has me thinking like, you know, we're probably going to be in this for a while before there's a vaccine, before things start to uh, even begin to go back to normal. And what are the going to be the consequences of the of the decisions that we make and, and how we use and utilize things that we um, purchase and consume? Mm, that's, that's, those are some great things to think about. Um, you know, I feel like... Um, like just like you know for myself like in answering that question of 
like what can I do to like to kind of create flourishing um, based on my presence. And it's interesting that that like like this time of the coronavirus, it's like quarantine season, all, all these different things. Um, it makes my answer feel like null and void. Because uh, mm. like like my answer like typically would be honestly like, like share tables with people. Um, yeah. No matter where you go, find a way to share a table. Like if you go to a coffee shop um, and you see somebody standing around, invite them to sit on the other side of the table with you. Like just share the space. Like even if you don't say anything, like, like when I'm at a coffee shop, I'm working. I'm not, no offense, I'm not going to talk to you. Um, yeah. But I can actually be generous with the space that I have. And um, so like for me, like that would be my go-to answer. But in light of quarantine, um, like there's a certain level of fear associated with um, being generous with our space. And so... Mm. Uh, it's something that I, I don't necessarily have a better answer for that type of response, but at the same time, I, I want a better answer for that type of response. Like, how do we be generous with our space? How do we be generous mm -hmm. with, with ourselves, um, yeah. in the midst of such limitations that are being placed upon us? Um, and and I'm not, not even saying like 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 rightfully so even right. Like we should mm -hmm. be careful and for the protection of other people. Like we don't necessarily want to go around hugging everybody, right? right? So so like, what does the generosity of space look like? when maybe that generosity actually looks like limiting the amount of space you take up or something like that. I don't know. So just some thoughts yeah. that, I, that I had around that, trying to create spaces that help people flourish based on your presence. And maybe it's my lack of presence uh, mm -hmm. that, that might help people flourish in those moments uh, in, in, light of, in light of the situation that we're in. But yeah. I, I would say that's not the norm for sure. Yeah. Because I'm awesome and it's great to be around me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. That's awesome. All right. Well, with that, um, I just want to like just kind of open it up. If there's any closing thoughts, anything that anybody has, to, like you know, just something that's kind of been rum you know rummaging around in your mind as as we've been going through this, um, just kind of open it up for any closing thoughts before we wrap up. No. No. Uh, I'm doing pretty good. Yeah. We, we left it out. All, we left it all out. We left it all out on the yes. metaphorical table. We went all in. <laughs> all right. We threw it all in the pot. Yeah. All right. <laughs> So, all right, cool, cool. Well, if you've been enjoying this uh, magical pot of gumbo, because <laughs> we threw it all in the pot, uh, we would love for you, uh, you know, to, to, to connect more with us. But uh, before we, we wrap up officially, you know, we always want to close off with a summary. And so Glenn will tell us the ingredients of our beautiful gumbo. And as we learned, this was a plate lunch with dividers so that each flavor can be its own. Gosh. You ignore our own metaphors. Um, <laughs> so if, if you've been sitting with us, we ask the question of what comes to the mind with the idea of purpose and origin when we think of Genesis. And we'd found that chaos is a natural part of life that doesn't just, it doesn't threaten life. It enriches and enables us to have new creative process by which we reform, we reshape, we deconstruct, put back together for an ever-expanding and inclusive way to understand their stories. When we ask the heart question of how have we expanded or how we experienced bumping into other stories, we found that we understood ourselves better and in understanding our own particularity and selves better, it allowed us to give room for others to breathe and tell us their stories. And this enabled us to see overlap and difference to recognize that some of the stories we tell share a more human experience. And then coming in, how do we become a place of better gardening, a better caretaker to where life can flourish? You said that it was actually being aware of our human footprint and presence, whether that is with our effect on the environment, our ability to realize that we take more presence in the conversations, so we should pull ourselves back, 
or how we can be generous with our time, that it's very much the ability to cultivate life looks like being aware of ourselves in a way that creates a space for others to be able to flourish. Awesome. Thanks, Glenn. Um, so with that, uh, Megan, again, you know, thank you for, for joining us today. It's been awesome to have you as a conversation partner in the mix of this. Uh, it's been fun. Yeah, we really appreciate that. And so um, as, as every time, uh, we want to just close with uh, letting you know how you can connect with us. And so basically www.fos.church, that's www.fos.church. Um, type that in your computer, on your phone, or whatever magical device you use to get on the internet, and you can find a whole bunch of ways to connect with us, whether it's uh, through online gatherings or podcasts and different things like that. So uh, definitely hit us up, check us out, and we would love for you to be part of the conversation. Thanks for joining us. Peace.